You ever wait tables? Anybody here ever work in a restaurant? I did back in the day too. And there's a common, tell me if you've had this recurring nightmare. That you're, you're, the, the restaurant, every seat, in the, every seat in the restaurant's packed with people, hungry people, and you're the only waiter in the whole restaurant or waitress. And you're slammed, and, you're, and you have no clue. You're lost. And in this nightmare is universal to the food service industry. I'm telling you, I don't know. Uh, law enforcement, same, same similar, uh, similar nightmare in law enforcement. The recurring nightmare that's universal to those in law enforcement is you're, you're involved in a situation where you have to draw the gun, and they call it the 10,000-pound trigger. In your nightmare, you've got the bad guy in your sights, but for the life of you, you cannot pull the trigger in the nightmare. And my recurring nightmare in that one I'm constantly getting shot right in the right chin, right here. I don't know why, because I can't pull my trigger to defend myself. And with, uh, with pastors and ministry, I've learned since 2009 that there is a common recurring nightmare amongst uh, preachers as well. And it's that you're going to be standing up here with a congregation and no message. And it's like, it, it's, it happens all the time. And, and I get this dream all the time. Well, my nightmare became reality almost when about this time yesterday, John calls me and says, hey. So what did I say? I said, hey, how are you? He said, well, uh, that's why I'm calling. He said, I tested positive for COVID. And I'm hoping you have a sermon in your repertoire that you can fill in tomorrow. I'm like, I mean, I have sermons that I've preached, but I'm not ready. There's no way to be ready because I'm going to give you a little insight into how I prepare for these. And bottom line is it takes, takes on average, I know this just from classes I've taken with fellow pastors, it takes on average about 15 hours of preparation and study for a diligent uh, preacher to be prepared. It takes me 20. I'm slow. On average, about 20 hours. And, and if you do the math, I get the call about this time yesterday. I got home about noon, 1230. Well, there's not 20 hours left for me to be ready for this morning. But So I asked John, I said, well, I'll just pick up where you left off because I wasn't here last week. Where was that? He said, well, that's why I'm hoping you have a sermon in your repertoire that you can just pull one of those out and preach that because the verse I left off is the one where he talks about baptizing the dead. I'm like, well, great. That's the nightmare. I mean, it's perfect. I'm, uh, so I said, no. I said, I have never preached on that passage before. I said, so when I get home, I'll start preparing and we'll just pick up where you left off. So all that to say... Uh, I'm sorry, but you're going to get what you're going to get, and you need to be thankful where you sit right now that John didn't call me this time yesterday to say, uh, the Broussards are out, we're out, Austin and Tori and Aaron are out, and we need you to sing. Just be grateful I didn't get that message, because then my nightmare would become your nightmare, and it would have been a horrible, horrible time. So... We will pick up where John left off last week, which is in 1 Corinthians 15, 
And we're going to start in verse 29. And in case you don't know this, uh, he tested positive for COVID yesterday. Uh, Jared had called me on Friday and said, hey, uh, we got COVID in our house. Can you teach Sunday school? I said, no problem. I'll just prepare for that tomorrow, which was yesterday. That was before I knew John was going to call. So it's, it's been one of those weeks where we have several people. The Broussards are traveling. Uh, there is a funeral today that Brother Charles Hutzler is preaching uh, that involves the family of some of our members. And so, so uh, we're here, and we praise the Lord. The two air conditioners over here are broke, so if, if you're cold-natured and, and, and you don't like how cold it is over there, you can go over there where it should be a little bit warmer. But um, I think for whatever reason, there's been some opposition. Maybe, maybe our adversary doesn't want us to meet today. I don't know. But what I want to do as we get into this passage, starting in verse 29, is kind of give you uh, re, uh, seriously a, a little bit of insight uh, into Bible study that is required for sermon prep. You know, one thing I've learned since being called to pastoral ministry back in 2009 is that a large number of people completely misunderstand what a pastor needs to do to be able to preach a sermon to you on Sunday morning. I remember very early uh, a member came to me and said, look, it's so easy. You preachers, y'all got it made. All you got to do is get up there and whatever the Lord gives you, that's what you speak. And so my answer to him was, if that's what your preacher is doing, you need to find a new church because that is not it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, It does not work that way. Uh, and that was very early, but since then I've had many people express that same idea, that same thought, and I just want to tell you that what I, what I believe to be the most effective, biblically sound method of preaching is what we call expository preaching. I'm going to talk about that a little bit in case you don't know what it is, and I'm not alone in that conviction, but in case you don't know what expository preaching is, that's what John does every week up here. Um taking us through the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, thought by thought, precept by precept, and breaking it down so that we can figure out what on earth is it saying, but not only that, how on earth do we put it into practice today? So that's basically what we get week in and week out from our own pastor. And expository preaching keeps the preacher from tiptoeing around difficult passages and only picking the ones that he's comfortable with. And would you agree, if you've been here through 1 Corinthians, there are some difficult passages, right? And John has taken us right through them. That's what one of the benefits of expository preaching. Today's passage is no different, uh, where Paul talks about baptizing for the dead. What on earth is that? And we're going to get to that. But expository preaching does more. It focuses more on the substance of the Word of God rather than on the preference or the limitations or the personality of the preacher. Okay? It focuses more on the Word. And it's most challenging because it absolutely requires the preacher to do what we call wrestle with the text. 
You have to get in there. You have to look at it. And so one of my favorites is uh, pastor teacher Stephen Lawson. I have a quote from him uh, that I think will be up. Yeah, uh, this is what he says about expository preaching. Just a little bit of what he says. He says, the expositor must be well, and this applies to you. I'm going to get there. You'll, you'll uh, just stick with me for a minute. The expositor must be well-established and sound exegesis. That's a word that basically means we draw out what was there, what was meant to be there. We don't read into the text our own, with our own presuppositions, uh, our own prejudices, our own preconceived notions about what this means to me. You know that famous question in Sunday school where you go around, what this means to me, what does that mean to you? No, exegesis is drawing out what the original author put in and not adding into it what's the, anything. So the expositor must be well-established and sound exegesis. He must be aware of the central theme and unfolding argument of the book in which his passage is found. He must detect key words, note the structure of the sentence. He must do word studies in the original languages and parse the verbs. He must recognize figures of speech, historical background, cultural setting, all this and more is involved in being exegetically grounded in the biblical passage. And furthermore, he goes on to say, in order to determine the meaning of the text, which is what we're all here for, the preacher must be well acquainted with the laws of interpretation. This includes knowing the literal, historical, grammatical approach to hermeneutics. What in the world is that? Uh, he must know the, what the rest of the Bible teaches on the subject addressed in his text. He must understand the progressive revelation of Scripture and the unfolding drama of redemption. This requires being able to access the original language in which the passage was written in order to examine the author's intent. And as he said, all this and much more is involved. Much, much more. And I only have one problem with that quote from Stephen Lawson, even though I like him a lot. What he said is true not only of the preacher, but of every Bible student. Uh, and I'm not saying you have to go to seminary, and I'm not saying you have to have a degree, and I'm not saying you have to have uh, a library of, of books uh, to be a, a disciple, to be a Bible student, but it does require work. In other words, our mission as disciples is not just to read the Bible. If you're reading through the Bible in the year, the mission is to what? It's to read through the Bible in the year. But your mission as a disciple is to study to show thyself approved, and that takes work, and that's why we're called disciples. And so we are called disciples because it requires work and discipline. And so I wanted to share that with you for a couple of reasons. Number one, mainly because I'll, I'll, I just want to encourage you, exhort you to always, anytime he comes to mind, be in prayer for our pastor. He needs and covets uh, your prayer. He's a man that one day he is going to stand before Jesus and give an account to Jesus for how he loved his sheep, how he fed his sheep, and how he protected his sheep. And that's not a small thing. Be in prayer for him. Be in prayer as he prepares for his message to us on Sunday, because even though that's only one part of pastoral ministry, it's not a small part, okay? Pray for him. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Pray for diligence. Pray he will remain faithful to the Word and to our Lord. He needs your prayers. The other reason uh, I mentioned uh, what I did about expository preaching and study is because of this text we're going to look at here in just a second. So, verse 29. It really is a doozy. So, 
what in the world does that, is he saying, what in the world does that have to do with us? If you've already looked, you see, and I've already mentioned, he talks about baptizing for the dead. And if, and if I were preaching a topical sermon, I might have picked a different topic altogether and avoided this uh, for something that might have been more, more easy to address. But again, in 1 Corinthians, we have been through it verse by verse, including the hard passages. And this passage that we're going to look at has been debated thoroughly for nearly 20 centuries. Seriously. And so my prayer for you today is twofold. One, it's two things I want to do today. That you would better understand how to study your Bible during your own personal, private Bible study time expositionally. And number two, that you understand how to understand a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, 29. I want you to understand how to understand that, okay? So hopefully I'll help you with that today. And speaking of uh, Bible study, here's another thing I, have up, uh, I think I have up for you is steps to Bible study. What are they? If you're taking notes, these are the steps to Bible study. If you want to grow in, in, in your faith, these are the steps. There are no shortcuts. The first step in Bible study is what? It's observation. What is that? That's simply reading the, 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 the text, reading the books, reading the Bible. You observe it. You read it, you observe it. That's what you do reading through the Bible in a year. You observe what's there. You're not trying to understand it. You're just observing. But the diligent student of the Bible is going to try to understand what's there by asking the five questions. Who, what, where, when, how, and why? Who wrote the book? Who did he write the book to? When did he write it? What period in world history? What period in the history of God's people? Was it the Old Testament? Was it before the exile or after? Was it in the New Testament during the ministry of Jesus or after? So when did he write it? Why did he write it? If we can know this, if it's revealed to us, why was the book written? So, uh, and, and, and how are we to respond once we know the answers to all the other questions that are to be asked. And so when you observe the text, you're not just giving it a cursory reading. You are looking for answers to those questions. And there's so much more. There's so many different ways. And I'm going to show you one specifically in this passage when we get to it. So the first step in Bible study is the work. It, it's the hard work. It's the observation. That's, that's where all the work is in that. It's noting all those different answers to all those different questions so you can try to figure out the context because the context is the key. You ever heard in real estate this expression, they say that location, the key to success in real estate is location, location, location. You heard that before? I want to tell you that the key to success in Bible study is context, context, context. And if you don't know the context, there is no way you can get to number two or three in those steps. Okay? So the context is key. And here's what I want to tell you about context. The Bible, any part of it, could never mean to us today what it did not mean to the original author or his audience. You got that? It could not mean to us today what it did not mean to the original author or his audience. So context is key. After we have done the work of observation, then we can get to step two, which is to interpret what in the world is the author trying to tell us? What does it mean? 
And again, that's not like going around the circle saying, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? This is what it means to me. This is... Can I tell you a, a, a little known secret about Bible study? I'm going to tell you a secret. All right? So it won't be a secret after this. It does not matter what it means to you. Now it's not a secret. What matters is what it means. It does not matter what it means to me. What matters is what it means. And if we get to interpretation before we do the hard work of observation, we are going to misinterpret what it means. And that's how we'll get to where our passage today, where we have so many different opinions on what it means. And if we skip observation, the hard work of observation, and we go straight to what does it mean for me, and we misunderstand what it means, then what? Guess what happens in step three? We misapply. We misapply. We put it to work in the wrong way, if at all. So those are the steps. You can't flip them around. You can't skip any of them. You can't do them out of order. Okay, that, those are the steps to Bible study. And ultimately, all that matters is what does it mean? And that's what expositional preaching and Bible study seek to answer. That's why it takes work. Okay, so let's look at our passage. I want to look at four verses. Verses 29 through 32. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm reading from New American Standard, but uh, you can follow along on the screen or on your digital copy or the paper copy that's near you in the seat in front of you underneath. It says in verse 29, Paul's writing, Otherwise... What will those do for those who are baptized? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So these four verses are in a broader part of chapter 15 where Paul's defending the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And he starts off by saying, well, if, if, if my opponents in the church in Corinth are saying there is no resurrection, then why are those same people baptizing for the dead. That, it makes no sense. So that's the, 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 the obvious and rhetorical question. And I want to tell you, the main, the, the main idea behind all this, what I want to share with you today is this. The entirety of our Christian faith rests on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything. Think about that. Paul's thinking about that. And he's pulling no punches when he defends the reality of the resurrection. In our life group recently, we finished a book in which the author made a very bold and shocking statement to me. He says, it's a book about defending the reality of the resurrection. And he says early on in the book, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, I will no longer be a Christian. So that... It's a sobering thought. It made me just kind of take a step back and think, whoa, uh, that's, 
That's true of all of us, really. If the reality of the resurrection is not a reality, if it didn't happen, think about the consequences and the repercussions and and all that that means. And that's what Paul does. After spending 14 chapters addressing all the various crazy issues they were dealing with in the church at Corinth, in chapter 15, he turns to the gospel, the thing he described as being of first importance, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to many witnesses, and all this was according to the scriptures. He gives us that before he goes on to defend the reality of the resurrection. And he was responding to the issue that some members in this church had come in and caused a great deal of confusion teaching there was no resurrection. One of the things they taught, this later came to be uh, developed into the uh, system known as Gnosticism, the Gnostics, those who supposedly have higher knowledge, spiritual knowledge than everybody else. And the Gnostics and these people apparently taught that the physical flesh is inherently evil and sinful and wasteful and destined for fire, but the soul is where uh, righteousness is. And so what you do in the, the consequences of that teaching was uh, what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. You, you want to be married to your stepmom? Doesn't matter. You, you want to have turn, turn the the communion love feast into a drunken orgy? That doesn't matter. That's the flesh. That's, that's destined for fire. That's, that's the kind of thing. That, and, if, and if the flesh is inherently evil, then what about Jesus? He didn't, come, he didn't really come in the flesh, they would teach. That, that just appeared to be flesh. He was really spirit. Because if the flesh is evil, and we believe Jesus became flesh that he was a man, then we would have to indict Jesus as a sinner. We can't do that, so really that must have just been an apparition. It gets very problematic. So they were causing a great deal of confusion and commotion in the church with this teaching that there was no bodily resurrection. The late pastor, teacher, F.F. Bruce, said this about, about the Corinthian church. They thought the respectable Greek belief in the immortality of the soul was perfectly adequate. And the resurrection of the body was an embarrassing Jewish handicap. That was their attitude. But as I said, everything hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Not just our faith, everything. Think about it. If he wasn't raised, Paul says, you know the gospel. You know how it was delivered to me, then to you. And as a result of it, you've affirmed it and you've been saved by it. How can you... Be saved by the gospel, which involves the resurrection of Jesus, and now de deny there's resurrection. Paul says you can't do that. I'm paraphrasing. He says you can't do that. The gospel and the resurrection are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If there's no resurrection, then where's the good news? There is no gospel. And it works the other way as well. To say there's no resurrection is to deny the gospel, which you have already been affirmed, which you have already affirmed, and by which you have been saved. That's insane. And in verse 20, which uh, John looked at last week, Paul says, no, that's not right. He said, don't be foolish. Christ has clearly been raised. And not only that, Adam may have been our representative in sin leading to death, but Jesus Christ is our representative in the resurrection. He calls Jesus there our first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection. In the Old Testament, when the, the uh, harvest came in, the very first 
of the harvest would be brought into the temple and offered up to God as an act of worship. And, and, and as a, a way of saying to God, we trust that as we offer you the first fruits of our harvest, there will be more harvest to come. And so what Paul says here, he says, Jesus is our first fruits in the resurrection. And so where he was raised first, we're the rest of that harvest. And if he's not raised, then there will be no harvest. And if there will be no harvest, then what? We're liars. Because when he says we, he's talking about him and the other apostles. We're liars because we've lied about God. We've testified that he raised Jesus from the dead. He says Jesus isn't raised. Jesus isn't God. And we're hopeless. And all of our uh, brothers and sisters who've already passed away in the faith, they're really, they're really lost. They've perished. They're in torment right now. And we're still here. And we are most of all men to be pitied. So let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's no hope. There's no point. And he says, that's foolishness. And he, he uses several, Paul uses several methods and arguments to illustrate and demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. Throughout all his writings, he uses metaphors. Here, he talks about fighting wild beasts. He talks about, or he uses contrast in this, in this chapter. He compares the first Adam to the last Adam. Uh, he uses lists. There's five parts of the gospel in, in verse 3. Uh, there's a list there. He uses lists. He uses repetition, not just Paul, but, but others. Speaking of repetition, there's a word in chapter 15 that's very interesting. And if I had come to you this morning and prepared a message for you from chapter 15 as a whole, I probably would have gone this route with it. Not doing that today, so I just want to encourage you to go back and look at and make a list in chapter 15 this week of how many times Paul uses the word last. L-A-S-T. What is it that's last? Four times he uses the word last. So go this week and look at that and make that list and then see what you can learn about those lasts and how you can apply that to your life. He uses lists. Paul's not the only one. Other Bible writers do the same. He uses rhetoric. He asks rhetorical questions with obvious answers. He uses reason and philosophy, which they looked up to, Greek philosophy and, and those who uh, taught it. He uses apologetics as he defends the reality of the resurrection. And he uses ad hominem argument. Now, I want to explain what that is. It's basically an argument where someone has an idea, and rather than debate the idea, you argue against the person. That's an ad hominem argument. He uses that here. So rather than debate the issue of baptism over the dead, he says, you're fools. That's what an ad hominem argument is, or an ad hominem debate. It's an attack against the person. He uses that regularly. Um, and I'm going to show you that here in just a second. So verse 29, he says, Otherwise, those that will, uh, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? He uses ad hominem argument there. He uses rhetoric there. And this is the verse I was referring to earlier when I said theologians have been debating its meaning for almost 20 centuries. One theologian I read uh, yesterday, uh, looking at this, is sa he said there's at least 20 credible explanations for what Paul means in that verse. 
And I read an ancient theologian from around the second or third century, and he says there's well over 200 credible explanations for what Paul means in that verse 29. Why so many? If, if everyone in that group is following sound exegetical principles I talked about earlier, why so many? Well, we can't go through all the possible meanings, obviously. So I'm just going to give you the answer. Okay? You good with that? I'm going to just give you the answer. What does Paul mean in verse 29? You ready for the answer? Three words. We don't know. And why don't we know? Because God hasn't revealed it. That's, this isn't the only place where that's the case, where we don't know. And where God has not seen fit to reveal it, we don't have to go off on, in these rabbit holes and try to find the answer. We don't know. There's 200 credible ones, but I'll tell you what, even though we don't know what Paul means here specifically, you know what we do know? We know what he didn't mean. There was a practice in the early church and it actually finds its roots in Judaism and ancient Greek mysticism. And it was this practice of being baptized for the dead. See, in Judaism, a person who was on his or her deathbed, but was ceremonially unclean for some reason, and they couldn't go become ceremonially clean because they're, they're on the, literally on the verge of dying, another Jew could vicariously go through the cleansing process on their behalf. So it's not totally foreign to the audience. And in the Greek uh, mysticism and what devolved into practice in the early church is you've all been to funerals, I assume, where the casket's on a cart, right? A wheeled cart. And that cart has a drape around it, right? So you don't see the cart, you don't see the wheels. Well, back, back then... If you were going to go and be baptized for the dead, this is something, uh, some, some of what would happen. You'd have the casket with the body and the drape on the cart, and you would crawl up under that, cart, that curtain, and you would lay on that cart concealed by the curtain. And then whoever it is that's doing the baptism for the dead person would ask questions to the dead person. And you being hidden under the cart, would answer those questions on their behalf and then would be baptized on their behalf. Now, to me, that's somewhat insane. But that's not even the most insane part of it. Think about the reality if that, if that really is what happens. You have a dead person who died in their sin, who is in torment, and in their torment is in the process of cursing God, weeping and gnashing of teeth and suffering and pain and cursing God for all of eternity. And then, somehow, in the midst of that cursing and suffering, back here in the land of the living, your family member baptizes themselves on your behalf and you suddenly, mysteriously, spiritually get whisked away from the place of torment into heaven. How are you, how ridiculous is that to think that that happens? It doesn't happen. And the, 
the, the congregations, the religions, the faiths that practice that type of baptism for the dead, we call them cults. In fact, there's one primary cult, the Mormon religion, that practices baptism for the dead to this very day. And I don't know if you know this or not. That's why they're so interested in genealogy. That's why it was Mormons who invented, created that website that you're probably familiar with called um, Ancestry.com that just recently sold this week for gobs and gobs of money. That's why, because they, they baptize for the, that's why they're, they're so into genealogies. Just a little side note, some little trivia for you there. But that practice, Paul says, he says, it's, it's foolish. How, how do you go from where we were when I left you to that? That's not real. And so what we do know even though we can't really say, unless you want to chime in with one of the 200 theologians who said, this is what Paul means in this passage, what we know he doesn't mean is we should be getting baptized for dead people. And how do we know that? He doesn't say it here. But he uses ad hominem to basically uh, accuse the opponents of, of going forth with this uh, practice. But we know from other scriptures. We don't really have time to go into them today. But if you're studying the Bible and you want to learn about baptism for the dead, then you can look up all the other places in the Bible that talk about baptism for the dead. And guess what you're going to find? There ain't any. This is it. And so you can look at what the other biblical teachings are on baptism and learn from that that what Paul is not teaching is we should be being baptized on behalf of dead people. That's foolish. The other thing that we should not do is take a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, 29 that has this vagueness to it that is not specific and, and then take it and use it to develop an essential church doctrine that we now put into practice in our congregations. You don't, you don't do that. That's not sound uh, Bible study. That's uh, not the result of sound Bible study. So we don't, when we don't know, in this case we don't know, we don't make it into a primary doctrine or practice or function in the church. Okay? What else do we know? Taken at face value, you just read verse 29 uh, as it's written in our English translations. Paul mentions baptism of the dead, but he doesn't approve it. He's not approving it. In fact, the way this is written in the original, if, you, if you're able to go and look, you'll see that he's actually changing his language in the sense that it, it, he changed it, the focus from we and us to them. If they don't believe in the resurrection, why are they baptizing for the dead? He goes from first person we and second person you to third person they. Um, and there's some other things in there, some clues that tell us that Paul is not endorsing baptism for the dead. He's using what they're doing to demonstrate the foolishness of their belief that there's no resurrection. You see the difference? That's what he's doing. All right, so there's at least 200 different opinions about what Paul means here. I'm going to make it 201. I just did. 
He's arguing in third person against them. He's using an ad hominem argument against the person or people uh, doing this practice rather than against the idea. Rather than spend time to develop an argument against baptism for the dead, he goes at the person and says, no, that's what he's doing. Okay? That's, that's, that's my idea, my explanation for what I think is happening here. But I could be wrong. Uh, you have to uh, be like the Bereans and do your own observation and determine whether or not what you're hearing is true and consistent with the word or not. Uh, so even though I could be wrong, I do know this. We are not called in this passage to engage in baptism for the dead. Okay? So where does that leave us? Two things. I want to leave you with two things. One is practical. One is theological. All right, theology is not just for seminary students, it's for Bible students. So one practical, one theological. And practically speaking, when it comes to Bible study, you must study to show thyself approved. Now when Paul wrote those words to his protege, Pastor Timothy, he was writing in the context of pastors. But I want to tell you that is applicable in the broader sense to all Bible students, just the same, just like the Bereans. The Bereans could not go and, and study the Scriptures themselves to see if what Paul was preaching was true or not if they, if they didn't do their own work. So they weren't pastors. They were the congregation. So study to show thyself approved. Again, it's why we're called disciples. If you're unable, after you have read a passage of scripture like this, and you're unable to make sense, phone a friend. I, for one, love those kind of discussions. I encourage you not to use Bible uh, commentaries. Don't use Google. Don't use Wikipedia, at least not in, up front. I would encourage you as you study to show your own self-approved that you do this. You read your passage without trying to understand it. You're just observing at the surface what's there. And the Bible, like my old mentor used to say, is like an onion. The more you read it, you peel away those layers, and eventually you get to the sweet, juicy center of that thing, and you see things you have never seen before. That happens all the time. So you read it the first time without trying to understand it. Go back and read it again, and then slow down and start looking for clues. Who is he writing to? Why was he writing it? Who wrote it? When did he write it? How am I to respond to this? How did they respond to this? Uh, and you go on. What list? Who, who's, being, who, who's being named as uh, parties in this, as people in this story? Who's in the story being talked about? And uh, what, what words are being repeated? I mentioned in this case, look at the word last. The word last is repeated four times. That's a clue. When you're studying the Bible, words that are repeated are a clue. Okay, So you do that. You read it, then you pray. Holy Spirit, I need your help. You're the teacher, I need you to teach me. And guess what? He'll answer that prayer. Then you read it again, then you start to try to interpret. And then, after you've done that, then, if you're still not sure, or if you come up with an idea, then compare what you have come up with to other commentaries or your study Bible or whatever the case might be. Okay, So you use them, but not as a crutch. 
Ultimately, you can phone a friend. As I said, I love those phone calls and type, those type conversations. And I know I've oversimplified, oversimplified it a bit, but my point is don't jump straight to interpretation. Don't use commentaries as a crutch. Allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in your life, and you will be richly rewarded for it. Trust me. The other thing I wanted to leave with you, theologically speaking, our entire faith and hope lies on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. The chief demonstration of the love of God that we sang about, that we talk about, the chief demonstration of his love towards sinners is that cross where Jesus died. And the chief demonstration of his power is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Nothing else matters. If there's no resurrection, then we are most of all men to be pitied because we have wasted a whole lot of time, effort, energy, money, resources on something that's not real. And God is not God, if that's the case. And if that's all true, Paul said, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we die and that's it. But the reality is God is love. And the reality is God is all-powerful. And the reality is Jesus Christ is raised from the dead as a demonstration of God's love and God's power. That is the reality. And that is the source of our hope in this world. And if that seems foreign to you, if you as you sit here this morning, if you're unfamiliar, if you don't know where you stand, if you have questions, if you think that you know that you're called to repent, but you have to get some things fixed or straightened out in your life first, if that's your thinking, I would implore you, do not walk out those doors today until we can help you get that straight and answer those questions. Nothing is more important. For the rest of you who know that you're saved and you know it, just a quick word of encouragement. If you've been discouraged or defeated in sin and temptation or uh, depressed over how the world is and how the world is treating you, just remember this. You're not home yet. Our home is still to come. And this life is not for you. Okay? So, I left you with practical instruction and some theological. And I gave you some homework. Go home and look at that list of lasts in chapter 15. Okay? Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the privilege. Wow. Even when we don't know how to say it, we just come as humbly as we know how, Father, to say thank you that we get together in a place like this for fellowship, to study your living and holy word, to learn more about who you are so that we can take it and put it into practice in our, in our own lives. And so as we leave here, as we prepare to leave here this morning, 
Lord. Our hope and prayer is this, that your Holy Spirit, that he would go before us, that he would be our hedge of protection, spiritually speaking, physically speaking, emotionally, with regards to temptation, Lord, but that he would also help us to recognize the power that we have through his indwelling presence in our, in our lives, uh, the power that we have to carry out your will in our lives. Father, our prayer is that as we go out this week, that you would lead us into the path of lost people and that you would give us the courage and boldness to speak the truth to them in love, to share the gospel with them. We pray, Lord, that all of those things would happen to your honor and to your glory as Jesus is lifted up. For our many members who are traveling or battling illness, Lord, we pray that you would bless us with their safe return next week. In Jesus' name, amen.